0: Let's pray together. Jesus, we, uh, we thank you very much that um, we have an opportunity to gather here this morning in spite of the cold and to hear from you, for, to hear your word. Jesus, I pray that we would hear your word today, that we would not uh, be ashamed of what we hear, but rather that we would be encouraged by what we hear. Jesus, would you help those of us who have come in with sore, battered hearts this morning, who are discouraged, who are angry, not really just at the weather, but at all of life. And Jesus, today, would you have an encouraging word for them and remind them that what they're going through is not in vain today? Would you do that just as an act of your sovereign grace? And would you help us to courageously obey and act upon what we've heard? Jesus, would you open our ears, our eyes, and our hearts this morning? In your name, I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, my name is Trev. I'm the uh, pastor here at Urban Grace Church. Want to welcome you. Uh, really surprised, actually, this morning uh, when I looked out of my window, I said, "No one's coming to church today." It's guarantee. Um, but you're Calgarians. You're tough. Um, and I appreciate that, and I appreciate the fact you've come to hear what I think is a really tough message uh, from First Peter. Uh, we joked before the service that, you know, we put up poinsettias, and, you know, we, we've got some new decorations up, and today we're going to talk about suffering and persecution. Um, not exactly, well, the rest of maybe the churches in Calgary talk about baby Jesus and, and Christmas trees, um, but I believe that this is an important word for us and actually uh, the Christmas story kind of came at a very persecuted time in church history. So this is actually perfect setting uh, for this kind of particular message um, because while it seems really warm and fuzzy for us as a season, it was not warm and fuzzy for the original people who uh, saw the birth of Jesus. Actually, it was a very cold, dark time. And that's the, that's the situation that's described in First Peter, just to get you caught up as to where we are in the series. We are in a series on First Peter. If you're not behind the speaker there, you can see it. Uh, we have a picture kind of of a boxer that we, we met this boxer, and he was actually a tested boxer. Uh, we had to actually photo brush the, the bruises out of his arms because he had been battle-tested. And that's really uh, that's really the story of first Peter. It's a letter that's written by a man who has been tested a lot by Jesus himself and by a lot of the trials that had come his way. Jesus, or Peter, the writer of this letter is probably only years away from being executed upside down, crucified upside down. Uh, so he knows really what he's talking about. He's a man who spent time with Jesus three years to be exact on this earth watching him. He tried to correct Jesus, and Jesus tested him a number of times. And so he's a man who knows what he's talking about when it comes to testing. And so he writes a letter, even though he doesn't know these people in Asia, he writes a letter to them that is all about the testing that they're facing in their lives. Because these believers are facing severe testing for their faith. Because of what they believe in Jesus Christ, they're being persecuted and executed for their faith. Some of them have probably already been killed, and some of them will be killed. And so even when we talk about suffering this morning, I'm having a hard time just making an easy parallel between the two kinds of suffering. Because the kinds of suffering that we honestly face is, it's a little cold out, and there's not enough parking in the mall. I'm not sure if I can get all of the presents my kids want. Even some of the deeper sufferings like I've lost my job or even a husband or wife in a, in a messy divorce. Or I've lost a friendship over Facebook and they've defriended me. Not that those aren't sufferings within themselves, but it's hard to compare that to someone who literally says, Would you recant your belief in Jesus Christ? And if you don't, I will chop your head off. It's hard to compare our suffering to them. But ironically, I believe we deal with all suffering in exactly the same way. Whether your suffering is deep like the people of 1 Peter, or whether it is maybe even shallower than that, you still deal with your suffering, I think, in the same way. And so there's lots for us to learn here this morning. But my question as we begin here this morning is, do you love being tested? Do you enjoy it? Do you like feeling like God is putting you through a number of tests? No, this is this is an amazing thing. Um, I it's not amazing that I watch TV, but it's it was an amazing thing to watch and being looking for a number of different places in culture and society where people actually enjoyed being testing. One of my favorites, um, I discovered it while on a retreat this summer, uh, in kind of a well, one of the people in our church let us let, let me use their uh, their ranch. Uh, for the week, while I studied, and I came across a video about a man who went up to Alaska to live alone for thirty years. He built his cabin by hand i mean it 's cool I mean just watching it, I felt my beard grow like it was that kind of it was that kind of video. It was super exciting. I wanted to go out and get an axe. you know I wanted to live off the land. you know everything that a hipster would ever dream of and one of the things that he said in the very beginning is i wanted. To see if I could make it. I wanted to put myself through the test to see if I could actually live by myself in Alaska for a year. I wonder if we think of these sorts of tests that comes in our lives as ways that God can help us. I wonder if we can change our attitude towards suffering so that when we suffer, not to take away the pain from suffering, but that when we suffer, we have some tools and some skills by which we can face it and almost welcome it because we know what it's going to accomplish. We know what it's going to reveal in our own hearts. We know it's going to be able to help us see whether or not we're actually real Christians or not. You know some that aren't. They say they're Christians, right? But as soon as something comes along that's difficult, they're not a Christian anymore. And I wonder if we can just change our attitude towards the sufferings that we do face and go, even though this is difficult, even though I don't like the process, even though I would choose ten times out of ten not to go through this, this is actually one of the ways that Jesus is using to make sure that I know my faith is secure. It's an odd way to think. But I think it's what the text has told us to think. So the first thing I want to take us through, and unfortunately I I was not able to get the right uh, year. Apparently everything updates over time, and so my keynote is not updated enough to make the proper keynote. So I'll have to do this little quiz orally. But since you all... Nodded your heads when you when I said, "Do you like to be tested?" I will test you this morning. It's about that time. Some of you are almost through your uh, exams. Uh, here's another little test. So this is simple. This is true/false test. There's six tests. So I want you to yell out as a group when you think something is true and when you think something is false. Okay. So the first the first question is this: True or false? Metal is tested in order to make sure that it's pure nice nice well done number two students are tested in order to find out what they really know true True. three rope tools or materials are tested in order to find out their strength. true okay well you can't lose lose momentum here true Four, athletes regularly test themselves to see how much they have improved or how much farther they need to grow. True. Number five, if you want to know the abilities of your warriors, they must be battle tested. Okay. Number six, Christians are tested as a result of God's disappointment with them. False. Yet, this is the number one pushback I get. You all said false because you maybe. Th- so, well, not all of you said false. Some of you said false. But it's funny how we act like this, and this leads me into the. Oh, it did come up. That's awesome. Um. The first point, and it's really the most important verse, I think, in all of the passage when it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Because one of the number one things I hear when people face suffering is they are surprised. And this is how they're surprised. They're surprised when they say, I was doing all this stuff for God. Why is this happening to me? I thought I was reading my Bible. Why don't I hear more from Him? It's almost a daily occurrence that I hear shock and surprise that Jesus doesn't do exactly what I want Him to do. And yet we know theoretically, we we hear this, and this is why I think this text is so good for us. Because we need to almost... Maybe we even need to memorize it. I'm going to go that far and say, I think this is a great verse to memorize. Do not be surprised. It, says, don't, it doesn't say don't ignore the pain when the fiery trial comes. It doesn't say Jesus won't show you compassion or we shouldn't show compassion for those who are suffering fiery trials. It doesn't say ignore the fiery trials. It just says don't be surprised at the fiery trial as though this was a strange occurrence. I think in our culture, this is such a, an important word because I think we're one of the only cultures that's surprised by trial. I mean, we honestly function and believe like everything we do in our life should go right. If you don't think that, drive Deerfoot. Okay? Does not everyone on Deerfoot think that the highway is actually for them and that the only thing that actually matters is whether they get to where they're going. My little brother made the observation. He says, when I went to another country, uh, people didn't assume they owned the space in front of them. So if you, if you were able to get there first, there was no big deal because you didn't own that space in front of me. He said, but here in Calgary, everyone thinks my space is whatever's in front of me. Have you ever pulled in front of someone that's doing like three kilometers over the speed limit and you're not? and how close they come, and how many times they honk their horn. I've had people cut me off purposefully because I wasn't going faster than the speed limit. Because I think we live in a culture that just expects, I just get to do whatever I want. I don't have to wait in line. I don't have to be patient. I prayed to God 40 seconds ago. And I don't have any answers. What am I doing wrong? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. We don't hear it from culture. We don't hear it from, I'll be honest, we don't hear it from some television preachers. We hear if you're suffering, that's obviously you don't have enough faith. If there's something wrong in your life, there's obviously some sin you need to confess. This is not actually a, a strange kind of idea that would even come out of the Old Testament because many people thought if, if you received economic blessing in your life, that that was obviously God being very pleased with you. In fact, some of the, some of the prophetic books, the whole message, like books like Amos, are about just because you receive blessing from God does not mean you're doing everything right. It's not automatic. And sometimes we actually believe this. We think if everything is going right, that means God is pleasing with me. If I talk to people and pray for people and they become Christians, I must be having a great walk with God. If I'm obeying God and doing my quiet time, then that, that automatically translates into me holding on to my job. Did you know that that's not actually true? It's not actually true. There's no equation in the Bible that says if you do your best to follow God, He basically has an obligation to treat you right. There's nothing in Scripture that would say that. Everything that we have is a gift of grace. And I would argue that even the sufferings that we have are gifts of grace. And hopefully you'll hear that by the end. But we should expect some sort of suffering as a Christian. Now here's where we get into problems is when we start comparing our suffering with other suffering. Have you ever done that? How successful, by the way, is comparing your personal relationship with Jesus with others? Anyone find it to be quite helpful? Anyone find it not helpful? Right. And yet how often do we do it? How often do we say, Well, I prayed and they didn't and I don't have a job and they do? Well, I go to church, I and they have a boyfriend. Well, wait a second here. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes your way. Do not be surprised. The second thing I think that really comes out of this is, is, and we'll get to this, but rejoice. What? Hold on a second. Did he seriously say rejoice? Don't be surprised, but rejoice. Don't we do the opposite? (laughs) We are surprised and we hate. He says, don't be surprised, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Did you hear that? He said you share Christ's sufferings. Last week, we had a young man. I'll still call him a young man. It helps me to feel a little younger. Okay? He shared in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what baptism actually is. That's what the Lord's table is. It's an act of sharing your life with Jesus Christ. But Jesus suffered and was tested. Now, sometimes you and I suffer because we're idiots. Jesus didn't suffer because he was an idiot. Sometimes you and I are tested because we make huge mistakes. Jesus did not make mistakes, and he was tested. You know, one of the first things we learn about Jesus Christ is that after he spends almost 30 years in relative oblivion, The first thing that God says in following the plan is, go out to the desert and get some severe testing. That's the first thing that happens. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, following the Holy Spirit, literally listens to the voice of God in his life, and God says, I want you to go out and I want you to fast. I want you to physically be tested. I want you to spiritually be tested. I want you to emotionally be attested. And there is more information on that testing in some Gospels than there is on the entire Christmas story in the others. Because I think Jesus wanted to very clearly explain to us, this is actually my life. This is part of my life. This is not an accident. Jesus did not run out of food He did not go on a spiritual pilgrimage to get close to God. God led him there into the desert where he said, I don't want you to eat and I want you to depend on me for 40 days. And most commentators and most scholars would say there's a huge correlation between the testing of Jesus and the testing of Israel. And and a lot of Old Testament books talk about the testing of Israel. Like the book of Exodus, for example talks about God leading his people out of slavery but what does he do the first act of freedom they have is what in the desert severe testing the first stories about this testing are what manna what is manna manna is this little white substance they call that's literally what the word means in Hebrew white like sub white bread like substance so it's like what is it it's white and it's bread like that's about it and you God made it he rained it from the ground or something somehow he made it so that it appeared every day but it didn't appear over an abundance of every day just enough for that particular day it's where we get the phrase in the new testament when jesus says give us this day our daily bread he doesn't say give us this day our weekly bread or our monthly bread or our bi-monthly paycheck He says, give us this day our daily bread because that act of giving manna to these people for 40 years was an act of testing to find out in their hearts if they really believed God's word. And so the Father says, Jesus, I want you to mimic this testing even though I'm not punishing you. See, we go back to that original thing. How many of you still this afternoon will ask the questions? I am being tested because God's disappointed with me. God hates me. God wants to remove me. God wants to deal with me. No, I do believe He wants to test you, though. Just like Jesus. Jesus expected it. You know, I love this about this book in First Peter that Peter is actually one to talk. He knows what he's talking about because when Jesus goes through this testing and over the course of three years, then he begins to, to teach his disciples about this. What happens? Jesus begins to say, hey, guys, I just want you to know these miracles, these healings, these raising from the dead, this is part of the plan. But guess what's also part of the plan? And I will go to the cross and I will suffer. And guess what Peter says, No, Jesus. Hey, would you like time out, Jesus? I want to take you basically back to my study and explain to you, don't be so pessimistic, Jesus. Come on, you're the Messiah. What would you talk about suffering for? And what does Jesus say? Hey, dude, if I don't suffer, this plan goes to pot. And if you're not on that plan, Then you work for the devil. So, get with the plan of suffering or get on someone else's mission. That was Jesus' words to Peter. So when Peter says, beloved, do not be surprised, it's because he was. It's because he was shocked. He was like, really? And lots of stuff did not occur to him until after Jesus had died and resurrected. And he finally started putting the pieces together and the Holy Spirit began to work in him. And he finally realized, hold on a second, this is part of everything. So this is a tested man saying this. This is not someone who is isolated from your situation. This is not someone who doesn't know what he's talking about. This is someone who sat in your shoes and probably will suffer more than any of you who says this. Beloved. People I love, please don't be surprised. I love to use the word surprise. I found it in the text earlier. And what it is, is people are surprised that you don't join them in, in having this great time. So Peter says, they're surprised that you don't want to sin. You're surprised that you suffer. They shouldn't be surprised that you don't join them to sin. You shouldn't be surprised that you have to suffer. And then he says, we can rejoice that we share in Jesus' sufferings. That's a difficult one to say, isn't it? I actually don't recommend telling other people to rejoice in their sufferings. I recommend letting the Bible and the Holy Spirit do that. Because sometimes that's a hard one to hear from someone who's not tested. Someone who hasn't walked in your shoes? Someone who doesn't want to listen to your situation? You know, in spite of all, of all of what's being said here, you know how many times Jesus, out of just pure compassion, healed people? He was exhausted, and then someone would come to Him, and, and He's like, you've been dealing with this for so long. Just out of pure compassion, He does it. Just just compassion. Not out of judgment. Not like, can I get these people off my back? Fine. <laughs> Walk. He never does this. He always says, I'm, I'm exhausted, but I know what you're dealing with. Here, stand up. Stand up. Just don't tell anybody I did this. It's an act of compassion. So we've, we've got to be careful when we talk about these things, when we say rejoice. But I would say, you can say it to yourself. And you need to say it to yourself. You need to be better at preaching it to yourself than you are at preaching it to other people. How easy to say, well, why don't you just rejoice? No, no, no. You just need to say, hey, whatever you're going through, I'm there there with you. And in your heart you go, I need to rejoice. How do you rejoice? Like, what does that look like? Anyone struggle to rejoice in their sufferings? Okay. Okay. 80% are liars. That's good. Um, Here's how you rejoice. You rejoice... Because in those sufferings, especially when those sufferings come as a direct result of you knowing that Jesus is doing this to you, you know you are one of His kids. You know you are suffering because you are being identified with Jesus Christ Almighty. That's why. You are on His team. You are one of His children. You're one of the people that He loves. Hebrews says, God disciplines those he loves. He tests those he loves. So this is why this, we can rejoice in this. I know I'm part of this team because of this. I know that what I'm facing is a direct result of being part of Jesus' team. I know I am called by him. That's how we can rejoice. I love the quote I found from Russell Moore. It's a whole book on the temptation and trial of Jesus Christ and what we can learn. And he has a very good word for us. And he says, Temptation is so strong in our lives precisely because it's not about us. Temptation is an assault by the demonic powers of on the rival empire of the Messiah. That's why conversion to Christ doesn't diminish the power of temptation like we, as we often assume, but actually, counterintuitively, it ratchets it up. Have, have you ever found that? Your life actually got much more difficult when you chose to follow Jesus Christ. I think I grew up in a culture that says, no, your life is going to get easier. All your problems are going to be solved as soon as you believe in Jesus. You're going to get richer, you're going to get wiser, you're going to get more freedom. And I remember talking to a a gal who became a Christian about five years ago. She said, actually, it got terrible right away. That's an act of God's love and saying, I want you to see whether your faith is real quickly. I want you to grow deep faster than everyone else. It has this strange way of sorting out those who are actually Christians and those who are not. Have you also notice that? There's a lot of parables about this. I think we'll get into that. But Russell Moore finishes that by saying, If you bear the spirit of the one the powers rage against, they will seek to tear down the icon of the crucified they see embedded in you. Because there is an enemy that is wanting you to face all kinds of temptation because do you know what they see in you? They see Jesus Christ. They don't like Him. They don't want Him. They don't want His kingdom to come in this world. And so they attack anyone that looks like Jesus. And God says, I'll let you attack them to test, but I'll only let them go a certain amount. Only for my good. This is where the demons get it wrong. They don't understand all of their effort is actually something that God would use to test His people. Only only our God could do that. So we can rejoice in testing not because the testing is easy, not because we enjoy it, not because it's not painful, not because it's not hard, not because we shed lots of tears, not because we're in agony. But we can rejoice in our sufferings because we know it's actually not an attack on us. It's an attack on Jesus Christ in us. And it's purifying things away from us. You ever notice how you come out of testing sometimes and you're like, I thought I needed that and I don't. I thought I needed my health. I don't actually need my health. I thought I needed my job. I don't actually need my job. I thought I needed my family. I don't actually need my family. I thought I needed this face. I don't need this face. I thought I needed those friends. I don't actually need those friends. Do I get all those things? Sure. Sometimes. Do you need them to survive? I'll let you answer that question. Only the testing will reveal that in your hearts. I can't test you. I would be a brutal tester. I'd be like, yeah, you're fine. And not our God. He says, I want you to see it real clear. So at the end of your life, on judgment day, when I look at you, I see someone who confidently says, I do not deserve to be here, but I know I belong here. And I have no doubts. How do you know that? Because... I faced a lot of trials, and not it did not break my faith in my Jesus. And we can rejoice in that. And I would flip this around, and I would say, what if, what if you thought of your suffering not as the absence of God, but as the presence of God? That the lack of suffering seems to almost be the, the absence of God. What if you started looking like that? What would that do? Well, you sure would have a lot of compassion on people that weren't suffering now, wouldn't you? You see, you need some suffering in your life. You need some Jesus. Don't help them suffer. Let Jesus do that. In fact, that's the next part of the text. Is that suffering shouldn't actually be pursued. And you won't have to pursue suffering. Don't worry, I'm not going to spend nearly as long on this point as the first one. But suffering should not be pursued. Peter's next words to his friends are this. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. I know a lot of you would read that and you would just think, well, none of those things exist in my life, so I'm good. But here's what I think Peter wants us to hear. There are things that we can do in our life to bring suffering on because we're actually not trying to purify our faith in Jesus Christ. We're just narcissistic. You have friends like this. Think through your friendships. Think through your family relationships. Think through about your parents, your brothers and sisters. Do you know someone who's always in a crisis? And do you, that person who's always in a crisis, do they not bring a lot of their crises on so that they can always be the martyr, so they can always be the sufferer? This is what Peter says. Not that kind of suffering. That's not the suffering that God blesses. That's why he says these two kind of wide spectrums of like murderer and thief. Like some people say, well, if the grace of God is real, then if I just murder a lot of people, then I'll receive the most grace from God. And Peter's like, no, that's not how it works. Well, if I just steal, maybe I have to. No, he's like, well, like an evildoer or a meddler. Do you know what the actual translation of that is? Someone who doesn't mind their own business. Do you know stuff, people who suffer because they just will not mind their own business? They're always sticking their nose in other people's problems. Not in a helpful way, in a very unhelpful way. You probably have a number of examples in your life of this. People that just repel Friends. They come to you and are like, I have no friends. You, and, and for the first, like, two minutes, you have a lot of compassion. And then after, like, two weeks, you're like, well, I know why you have no friends. You're mean. You say stupid things to me. I don't want to be your friend. And Peter says, that's not the kind of suffering that we're talking about here. Not the kind of suffering that you kind of almost willingly bring on so you can just complain and, and just instead of getting God's compassion and blessing, you're just trying to get other people's blessing blessing and compassion. Right? It's like the person, I remember this very clearly in high school. Not the bathing suit part, but there was a girl in, uh, she was standing in the water in her bathing suit, in her ankles. And she was like, I sure hope no one pushes me in. Like that kind of person. Just, They're just constantly asking, being the martyr. So we pushed her in. Of course, she complained. You guys are mean. You shouldn't push me in. It's like you're asking for it. I've repented, so we're all good. But that's a that's a silly, simple example. But some of us, we actually get into... I don't know, we we get into relationships to break up with people so that we can have everyone's sympathy. Oh, the girlfriend just broke up with me again. So, have compassion on me? No. No, I don't have compassion on you. She's better off. We laugh about this, but how many times do we bring suffering of a certain kind on so that we can receive attention? We're feeling bad about ourselves, and we can't find good help, and so we complain and put ourselves in situations where people just kind of have to feel bad for us or else they're terrible people. Peter is not talking about that kind of suffering. He's saying you'll probably just get what's coming to you when it comes to that. I mean it sounds really cold and harsh, I know. I get that. But if you can hear the the kind of the bottom line of that text is that that kind of suffering is not what what Peter is talking about and he even continues and he says Not that you should be ashamed of suffering when you do face it. You should be ashamed of suffering like that. But you shouldn't be ashamed of just suffering because you love Jesus. And this happens. Some of us, we just don't get that promotion at work. Because we just don't have it in with the boss. We just won't do what they want us to do. We're too above board. I worked in the restaurant business. Well, worked slash washed dishes in the restaurant business. But I saw how that business, if you were a little bit crooked, you could move forward. And if you weren't crooked, it was very difficult to move forward. If you lowered your modesty standards as a woman, you could get a better job and paid more and better tips. But if you kept your modesty, you couldn't. Get as good of tips. If you um, showed up to work on time and didn't cheat the boss out of time, your coworkers actually were frustrated by you rather than enabled you. I remember on a job site, I'm in the rafters, I'm sawing, I'm this dangerous work, and my boss, new guy came in, and my boss said. This idiot loves God more than his family. I remember feeling terribly ashamed. God, what have I done? Now I look back and I go, no, no, I shouldn't have been surprised by that. I was hurt by that, and Peter actually says it's hurtful. But what I shouldn't have been is surprised that this happens. I mean, is that not glorifying to God? This guy loves God more than his family? That's what my little girl said to me. She goes, Dad, no offense, but I love God better than you. Is that okay? It's like, awesome. It's my disciple. That's something that God says is important. He says, I'm the most important. I should not be ashamed of those things. That's why Peter says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. I should have said, you know what? This, it's obvious that he sees Jesus in me. I felt guilty that he didn't get saved. I felt ashamed that I didn't know what to say. I should have felt encouraged. That Jesus chose me to participate in his sufferings in that way. Because to this day, I know that that man knows that I love Jesus more than anything else in this world. To this day. That's a witness that continues on. He actually did the witnessing. You see? I think this is why Jesus says, you are blessed. You can rejoice in this, not because this is fun, but because ultimately this accomplishes what I want, which is the glorification of my name. Lastly, and thirdly, suffering should make us ready. This is what Peter says. For it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Here's what Peter is saying. If you are a Christian, the final judgment's begun. If you are not, it's coming. And do not find out when it is. You don't want to do that. But if you are a Christian, here's God's plan. He's begun to purify you for the end. He's begun to prepare you for someone who worships him 24-7. That's why you'll find as you go through testing, things are just falling off. I'm watching this ridiculous show called Out of the Wild, the Alaska Experiment. Anyone seen this? Okay. Okay. You know what I'm talking about? They send like, you know, 10 city slickers into the wild and give a bunch of supplies to them and tell them you need to travel 40 or 50 miles because it's in Alaska, it's not kilometers. And over time, you need to survive. And so what I notice is that as they continue to get tested and tested and tested and tested, they start leaving things behind that they don't really need. The big cast iron pot that's 25 pounds. He's like, we left that behind because we didn't think we would need that. I was like, well, if you're a Canadian, you would have known not to leave that, you know, in the beginning. But let's not get into a fight about Americans, Canadians. But what's cool is they just started to leave things behind as they were tested. We don't ultimately need that. We could use that, but that's not absolutely critical to our mission. I'd like that because it helps me with my comfort, but honestly, at the end of the day, I want to arrive alive. And this is what Peter is saying. This kind of suffering actually has the intention to make you ready to meet Jesus face to face, and it starts actually now. And if we would think of our suffering like this, I think it would be so helpful to us. Because some of you, and I I hate to say it, some of you right now who are here will fall away through testing. I don't know who. I'm actually really glad I don't know who. I'm glad Jesus doesn't say those things. But some of us here will fall away at testing because we will look at the comforts and we say, Yeah, I I know I don't need that, but I really want that. And instead of, of, of being purified of it, we actually just pile it on. And the people that, that Jesus met in the Bible, he met in, this, in the stories in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he would often say like, okay, you've done this, this, and this. What if you just gave up everything? What if you gave up all your comfort and just followed me? And those people said, huh, can't do it. I can obey you if the list is this long, but if you tell me I have to purify my entire life, I don't know if I can do it. And they walk away sad. And I think Jesus sees them walking away and is also sad. Jesus told this story in Matthew 13. It's about the parable of the sower. And he said that sometimes people will just, they'll fall away. How many of you have heard of the parable of the sower? Here's the parable. The parable is a sower goes out into a field and he seeds the field. And there are basically four types of of people because he explains the parable. The first seed lands kind of on the the ground and birds come in and, and take it away. The second kind lands on rocky ground and it goes down a bit, but then because it doesn't have any roots to it, it grows up a little bit, but when the sun comes out, it, it's scorched. And the, and the third is hard ground, so it doesn't even get root. And the fourth sinks down deep, builds roots, and grows a hundredfold. And actually, the, the phrasing that Jesus used for the rocky ground in particular is really interesting because he actually said, when the soil lands, when the seed lands on the soil, the people who are, have rocky ground... They're not willing to understand testing. The seed goes down for a bit. It grows up for a bit. But then as soon as the plant is tested, it scorches and dies. Interesting. Jesus was trying to tell his disciples something. He was trying to say, here's what matters. That you make it to the end. It doesn't matter how fast you grow in your Christian walk. It matters what you are like at the end of your life. The most important day in your Christian life is not actually the first day. It's actually the last day. Some of us are, are really good starters. We, we're, we're great at starting things. We're entrepreneurs. We love this stuff. But the question is, when Jesus Christ returns in your life, and, and you don't know when it is, not only will some of you f- will fall away, some of you will meet Jesus soon. When you meet Jesus, are you ready for that? I mean, does that sound like a warm, fuzzy Christmas story to you? Not to me, but it's so important. It's so important to think about the end. It's so important to think, when if I face Jesus today, what would happen? Where would I be at? And here's what I don't want you to think in in pass fail because Jesus doesn't do pass fail. Jesus doesn't say you've, you've been faithful enough so you pass. Well, you haven't been faithful enough so you don't pass. This is what Jesus does. He does refined, not refined. Some of you kind of are living your life like you're in a pass fail relationship with Jesus Christ. 50% of the time, if I'm faithful, he'll be good to me. 50% of the time, if I'm not, he won't. If I'm 30, 70, good luck. Friends, that's religion. That is not the gospel. The gospel is, if you are one of Jesus' kids, you should not be surprised for suffering because he is refining you, but he's refining you for the end. How many of us have had to think carefully when we make a trip somewhere, like who enjoys really driving long, long distances? The the very beginning is awesome, isn't it? Right at the end, maybe it gets a little bit better when you can see, but there's a point where you're just like, oh, my goodness, this is difficult. This is boring. And if it isn't for the fact that you know where you're going to arrive, some of you never keep going. And this is what Jesus says. Those who are in the household of God are getting judged right now. You're getting purified right now by Jesus. You're getting tested right now to see what your faith is like. He's peeling back all of the things that you don't need. So that at the end, you can stand with confidence and say, I don't deserve to be here, but I belong here. On the basis of my sin and my disobedience to you, Jesus, I don't belong to be in your presence, but because of your love and grace and forgiveness to me and your death on the cross and the ultimate sacrifice, I get to be here. And you know it. Because you've had a choice not to. You've seen the ugliness of your life and you said, I would choose Jesus any day. And so we just finish off with the question. What's it gonna be? How are you gonna respond? I can't respond for you. I can't force you to get through testing. I can't force you to think that this is a refining process and not a pass fail. You have to do this. This is the amazing thing about Jesus is he does not give the power to pastors or spiritual advisors to save people. He says, That's my job. He says, Preach and let me do the work. So I'm preached. And I ask you, the Holy Spirit is saying something to you. You need to listen. You might need to repent of your attitude towards suffering in Jesus. You might need to be encouraged. You might need somebody to pray for you. You might need to talk to someone. You might need to reevaluate. You might need to just get alone and get this straight with Jesus and work it out. And for those of us who are have friends who are suffering, can we just can we ask Jesus to help us be mega compassionate to them? That we wouldn't heap on bricks in their backpack, so to speak. You know, in the, in the Psalms, there's a good there's a good word that says He does not break the bruised reed. That means like he, the, the idea was like all these cattails in a swamp sometimes have broken leaves. And if the wind comes too hard, these leaves just kind of break off. And he says, if you've got a broken leaf, Jesus doesn't come along and crack it off. Instead, he holds it up. Can we be a church that just holds up the broken reeds among us? That suffers with those who are suffering? That cries with those who are crying? That is patient with those who are impatient? That loves Toward those who have a hard time experiencing God's love. Because sometimes that's why we all need to understand what suffering is about. And when we take a careful look at what Jesus has done for us, friends. How he has suffered for us. Not because he made mistakes. Not because he was an idiot. Not because he did anything wrong. But because he wanted you to have his salvation. When you look at the suffering of Jesus, this is an execution symbol. It's a strange symbol for for a church. It's the equivalent of us putting the electric chair on stage or the firing squad on stage. It's a weird symbol, but it's a symbol of Jesus' suffering. It's a symbol of what He has gone through for us. And we think about it carefully whenever we do the family meal. This is why we do it every week, not every month. Because every week I think we need a fresh knowledge again, understanding of the suffering of Jesus, what he has gone through for you. And so here it is, the bread which represents his broken body. He literally, physically suffered a brutal beating in his life. He was almost beaten to death. His blood was shed in the process and ultimately he, he, he bled on the cross as a sacrifice for us. And so if you believe that about Jesus, and if you love that about Jesus, and if you share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ, then I ask you to come as an act of participation, as an act of reminder. I am one with Jesus. He lives in me. I have His body in my life. That's why we take it in. And then we'll celebrate together. I believe what's going to happen is Julie's going to sing us a song as a way of meditating.